Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. My name is Benjamin Law, and I'm so thrilled to be here with you all on beautiful Gadigal land, um, part of the great Eora Nation. First Nations people on this continent have been sharing stories and knowledge here for tens of thousands of years, and together those First Nations constitute the oldest continuing civilization this planet's ever seen. And we are really grateful to elders past and present that we can continue sharing stories and knowledge here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. Today we're talking about adaptation from page to the screen. Now, some of you might know that the first TV show I ever worked on was the adaptation of my own memoir, The Family Law, for SBS, Comedy Central, Asia and Hulu. And I can tell you, as much as it's a sociopathic thing to do to write a memoir about your family, it's arguably even more sociopathic to adapt that story into a TV show. And the assignment itself, fundamentally, is kind of tricky as well, because, yes, great adaptations are all around us, The Silence of the Lambs, The Godfather, The Colour Purple, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park. (laughs) But as the great movie adaptation did show us, taking a beloved book and turning it into a beloved movie or TV show is a task that can be mind-bendingly tricky sometimes. But when it works, it can not only honour and elevate the original source material, but it can often introduce the story for the first time to a whole new audience. And so I can't wait to talk to the three authors that we've got here today, two of whom have adapted their own and other people's works for the screen about the process and the result. First up, we've got the author of the acclaimed Child 44 trilogy, a global publishing sensation that has sold over two million copies and counting and was long listed for the Man Booker Prize, which became a movie with Tom Hardy and Gary Oldman. He also writes for TV and has won a Writers Guild Award for Best Adapted Series and an Emmy and a Golden Globe for American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, his adaptation of Maureen Orth's book, Vulgar Favours. His latest novel, Cold People, is out now. Please welcome Tom Rob Smith, everyone. Next up, we've got an author and screenwriter best known for The Luminaries, the novel that made her the youngest ever winner of the Man Booker Prize in 2013. The Luminaries also won the Governor-General's Literary Award and became, of course, an international bestseller. Her debut novel, The Rehearsal, won the Betty Trask Prize, and her latest book, Burnham Wood, just came out. As a screenwriter, she adapted The Luminaries for TV and also Jane Austen's Emma as a feature film. Please welcome Ellen Catton. And finally, we have a writer, storyteller and TV presenter whose best-selling debut novel, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, has been translated into myriad languages, published in over 30 territories, and has been adapted as a seven-part TV series starring Sigourney Weaver that will stream in over 240 countries on Amazon Prime (laughs) later this year, and she is thrilled about it. Uh, She was was also the co-host of ABC TV's acclaimed and beloved series, Back to Nature, alongside Aaron Peterson, and her second novel, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding, just came out. Please welcome Holly Ringland, everyone. Thank you, Hi, everybody. 
It's so good to have you all here. I want to start with um, Holly and Tom, actually. I'm going to just start with you two, because both of you, if, I, if, I, if I'm correct, you've had the experience of actually handing over a book you've written to be adapted by someone else. That's such an act of trust, right? And I'm really, really keen to know what that exchange is like. So, I mean, Holly, if we start with you, Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, it's already, I think, this modern Australian classic of female survival and resilience. Um, Sigourney Weaver is one of the EPs. Yeah, you might have heard of her. Um, Sarah Lambert is the showrunner, and I think a lot of people would know her by her work, like Lambs of God. Which conversations do you have? What kind of conversations do you have with them and the rest of the team that convinced you they were the right people to be trusted with your work? It was... Uh, I, I was... Uh, <laughs> she's a writer, everyone. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, what I'm, I'm going back to 2018 when I um, got the first... Uh, phone call or email that um, that said to me, you know, would you like to... I was in Manchester in England at the time and I got an email that was, um, would you like to jump on the train to London and go and meet Sarah Lambert? Mm. And uh, I think I wrote back something like, yeah, I think I'm free. Yeah, sure, I yeah, can do that. Whatever, blase, what, cool. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. like what was happening while I was writing it was like, can I say fuck in this email? Like, oh my God. <laughs> so I got on the train and I, I hadn't spoken to Sarah before. I knew of her work. I loved her work. I had to tell myself to not constantly uh, like resist the urge to be like, are you sure? Like, do you want... <laughs> so I got down there and Sarah and I had... Um, we were going to meet in this wine bar, this little restaurant in London. And I walked in and... She was already there, and it was one of those situations that we, at least for me, rarely have in life, where you meet a stranger and you recognise them immediately. And uh, short story, long story short, is we were the last people in the restaurant that got kicked out. Huh. Um, we, our, there was some sort of mind meld that happened that day. The conversations that we had, the... Um, synchronicities and connections. Sarah talking to me about what her connection was with Alice Hart and there were moments even then when I was listening to her talk about it and I thought, did you write it? Like, <laughs> and just my heart, it was a real body, it was a bodily, re it was physical reaction. It was that gut feeling. Because a lot of people who have read Alice Hart Real, feel really protective of it. They have such a personal connection with that yes. story. Yeah. Was knowing that someone who is going to adapt to the work, having that connection to the story it was themselves, everything. paramount? It was, yeah. and that, you said before the trust, it was immediate, it was implicit. And then Sarah and I, fast forward sort of a couple of years, we went on an odyssey into the desert together. We drove around in a four-wheel drive. I want to see that film. We were, yeah. <laughs> it is a film. Yeah. It was. <laughs> <laughs> we had an amazing amazing time together and the tr uh, the trust wasn't forced it mm. was it was gut led tom you've had the experience of adapting other people's work but you've also had the experience of other people 
adapting your work. And so the internationally best-selling and acclaimed Child 44 trilogy of yours, loosely inspired by the case of a Soviet serial killer of women and children, it landed in the hands of Ridley Scott. You might have heard of him. <laughs> um, how, did, how did that come about? Uh, that was kind of... I mean, I'm just listening to... Um the story about driving around the desert and thinking if Ridley and myself had driven around the desert. It was just, <laughs> I mean, it was like the opposite experience. It was so formal. Uh -huh. It was so like, we're going we're gonna to take control of this book. We're going to give it to Richard Price to adapt, who I think maybe sent me one email. So there was no mind meld mm. at all. Okay. There was this... And were you okay with that? Was that the no, right I mean, process? It's interesting listening to people talk about it now. I'm like, I think actually there should be a mind meld. I think there should be that. You know, it doesn't have to be um, friends. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be as wonderful as that sounds. But mm -hmm. there should be some sense of what is the thing pulsing here. And I understand it, that the heart of it. And, you know, even someone who is a brilliant writer as Richard Price is, and who, and whoever is adapting it, I think there is ultimately an emotional core. And you're trying to find out what that is. And one of the things that's interesting on Child 44 is I was really interested in justice that this story was about a, a person who'd get away with killing just because he was a member of the Communist Party. And so he wasn't questioned. At one point, and he was a terrible liar, this killer. He was caught on a train with a knife, and he was a terror, you know, he blushing. And he should have been arrested at that point, and he just produced his Communist Party membership badge and, and was sent on his way. And because of that, another 30 people died. So it was like mm. a real encapsulation of injustice. And lots of people have that in their life for whatever reason, whether it be... Um, misogyny, homophobia, racism. Like, there's something about that personal connection you want to unlock. It's not just a set of events. Mm. And so I think, looking back, I was a little naive, and I think, actually, the whole process would have been better if there had been more of a mind meld. Because you're so bedazzled by people because of their, their reputation and their skill um, that, in the end, well, I'm sure everyone will attest to this. It's such a journey to get anything to the screen mm. that if you throw even the slightest spanner in the works, you feel like it's going to derail it. So if you're remotely difficult at any point, it won't happen. So you're so compliant with everything and so excited by everything. You're like, yes, yes, yes. You say yes a lot. Very <laughs> few people say no. Well, I, I want to move the conversation to Eleanor soon, but before we do, I mean, was it ever a question for each of you, with these books at least, because, Tom, you've gone on to adapt other works, but was it ever a question for you to adapt your own work, Holly? I, I do remember the moment. I think it was my agent, Beniathan, said to me on the phone, and this was before... I knew about Sarah, and I think it was before there was any discussion of who might be writing it. And Beniathan said to me, um, uh, you know, Holes, like, do you want to do the screenplay? And I, I think I snorted, and I was like, no. <laughs> and Where did that reaction I, come from? I, and I think the place that it comes from is, uh, even before any, like, self-doubt flew in of, like, oh, I couldn't ever, you know, write a screenplay, it was more like... I don't know, I did my, what Alice Hart needed from me mm. was to write her story on the page, to get it out of my body and onto the page. And I did that. And that was done. And um, if she was going to have a, a life on the screen, that was for somebody else to do. Mm. I didn't feel like I could go back into, I didn't feel like I would survive. <laughs> 
going back into that place, also under, I've never written a screenplay before, let's give it a go with this. Yeah. yeah. So that's... What about, what about you, Tom? Was it ever a question for you, at least with that, with that adaptation, with Child 44, that you might want to jump in there yourself? Well, it was a question that I had in my head. I don't know if they asked the question. <laughs> um, and it's strange because even, like, the opening, which is a set in the Ukraine, I mean, now it's, you know, it's in the news, obviously, but, you know, because Putin has obviously had this obsession with Ukraine, and the reason, one of the only reasons he banned the film uh, in Russia was because of the representation of Ukraine and this this... This, this very critical um, uh, stance on uh, Stalinist Russia, and he's now obviously pro that history. Um, but, you know, it started with a killer born in the famines of the Ukraine, and this idea of a country eating itself had this really kind of strong metaphorical resonance, I thought, and that's where the killer comes out of, that kind of horrific, the famines there. And when that changed, it was kind of, you know, they altered that, and I was like, you know, that that piece of history, I didn't make that history up. You know, that was like a kind of key thing. So there's all those moments where you think, well, I wouldn't have done that. But then it got made and I went to Prague to see the film and it had a great cast. I really liked the director and, you know, it was exciting. So at that point, you know, retrospectively, you look back and think, well, well what would I have done? But no one actually even asked me. So you're the first person to ask <laughs> oh, me, I okay. think, actually. <laughs> We're doing a remake. <laughs> oh, no, that's true. I was asked to do it as a TV thing recently. Oh, really? Yeah, they, uh, Are you interested? I as a, and I was like, I have to read all the research. I don't know whether, but going back to something after so long uh -huh. feels odd. Yeah, odd to me. interesting. Eleanor, after it was announced that The Luminaries was going to be adapted for TV, I think plenty of people were asking the same question because this is like a doorstopper of a book. It's over 800 pages. And how do you possibly adapt that for the screen? Now, is this true or is it false that the answer is, quote, seven years, 300 drafts and plenty of crying? That was a headline in the <laughs> LA Times. <laughs> All, all, all true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, um, so the, the book was optioned for television um, really early on, uh, very shortly after it was published. Mm -hmm. And um, the producer in question took it, took it to various screenwriters. And he kind of went to all of his top ten, and they all said no. And then he went to second ten, and they all said no. Really? What, as, what was happening there? Why were they saying no? I, I think that the, the subject matter was so esoteric maybe it was you know the the book is set in 1860s New Zealand but then also has this astrological kind of superstructure to it and I think that the there's probably only one person in the on the planet whose whose interests quite collide <laughs> in that way it's just probably me whose interests collide um, and is probably game enough to do it yeah it's funny when so um eventually kind of during this whole process when all these people were rejecting um, uh, th these approaches, I kept on emailing him with ideas because I, I was kind of like, oh, we could do it this way, we could do it this way. And sooner or later he just said, well, why don't you have a go and, and put together a pilot and then kind of everything, everything happened from there. But at, at that time, um, pretty much everybody in my personal life said, do not do, not do this, it's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> um, it will ruin your relationship with the book. Oh, it will God. also trap you in that kind of creative space with this this story and these characters for way longer than is healthy for a person. Um, I love knowing that you have so many people in your life you can lean on for moral support. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a yeah. horrible idea, Eleanor. But you went ahead and did it. And, and yeah. what was compelling to you about the idea? Because we've just heard from other people saying, you know, revisiting that work, how would I possibly survive mm. going back in that realm you've already created? Were you looking forward to that, that challenge? 
I, I had a lot of fun, um, but I have to say now that I've been through it, I can see <laughs> the wisdom and <in, laughs> all the people who told me not to do it. Um, because it, it, it is an enormous undertaking and it takes up many, many years of your life. And yeah, it's, it, I, I, it, it's interesting to me because I've now had the, the experience of adapting other people's work and my own work. And I actually found adapting Jane Austen, even though she's such a, obviously such a kind of a legend, such an icon, I found her ad adapting her work much, much easier, mm. partly because... I knew where I stood with it. I was just an uber fan. You know, I, I, will, I will defend the novel Emma to, the, you know, to my dying breath. Yeah. Whereas I feel much more ambivalent about my own work. And I, I, I really respond to what you were saying before, that you know, there's, there's a sense when you're making a TV show that you're, you kind of have to convince people of the worth of what you're doing all the time. Because nothing, mm. nothing exists until the day that the cameras are rolling. Mm. And... Yet at that day, by the time you reach that day, it's too late to change kind of anything that's, that, that's got you to that point. Had you, had you done screenwriting before you adapted The Luminaries? Uh, no, apart from a few zombie movies when I was in wow. high school. So <laughs> what was that learning curve like? Well, I, I kind of did it the very nerdy way. I went back to all the um, screenwriting manuals. I, I watched a lot of movies with the, with the scripts out in front of me. And um, I kind of approached it like a new discipline, I suppose. I, um, and it was, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, there, there were kind of mistakes that I made early on that, 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 were, that, that had to do with learning a new language, in a sense. Like, I remember a very early draft of the pilot of The Luminaries, um, there was a there's a, character, a Cantonese character who is uh, speaking in Cantonese, and uh, um, a white character who, as I had written it, his eyes kind of widen in recognition because he he knows Cantonese, even mm. though people don't know that he knows um, the language. And the producer um, looked at this and said, "This is this is a novelist writing. This is not a screenwriter, because how on earth can an actor play?" I know how to speak Cantonese yeah. on, on their face. A light face. bulb emerges over <laughs> their head. Yeah. yeah, kind of a speech bubble, you know. <laughs> um, and so I was writing in the kind of... I, I was writing too much into, into the performance that, that, that an actor wouldn't be able to play. Mm. Um, but then there's kind of other lessons that you learn as a screenwriter that you don't really learn until the shoot gets going. Um, so, um, for example, on, on that uh, production, there are a whole, a whole lot of things that just kind of just contingencies that, that, that would come up during, uh, during the shoot that had to do with just running out of money and running out of time and having to really quickly come up with a story reason for, for a decision that you would not have made if, you were the, if, if, if it was just you and your study. You would never have, have, have made this decision. And, and, and so, for example, um, uh, what's now a very important scene in the pilot, the um, scene with the two luminaries, really, the two kind of leads meet for the first time. I had written this scene in, in, in this very particular way. Um, it had involved um, quite a lot of uh, other characters in the scene as well. Um, but we'd left it to quite late in the, in the shoot to film it, which is maybe a bit unwise. And by that, that point, we didn't really have very much money. Yeah. Common story with screen, yeah. And... Um, the uh, Maritime New Zealand um, went and had a look at the, the boat that they'd built on, on top of this more modern boat that, that, that this, where the shoot was going to happen. And they said, OK, we're not really happy with the health and safety of this, so we've decided that you can film the scene, but we're only going to allow four people on board. Oh. And we were like, but there's about a dozen people in the scene, so how the hell are we going to do it? We're, OK, well, we need the two 
actors who are the, have speaking parts. We, we're going to need the, um, the person to hold the camera. <laughs> That's going to be really crucial. So maybe we can have one other person. And Maritime New Zealand said, oh, no, no, that four people includes the driver of oh, the no. boat, the guy oh, who's no. just out of camera, who's in modern, you know, his modern life jacket and so on. Um, and so you kind of come up against problems like this. That it, it, it's very different, you know, as, as a novelist, for better and for worse, you're responsible for everything that exists within those two covers. You know, you've, you've, um, any decision you've made, you've made it because you've, you feel that either that it's the best that, that needs to be done or it's just the best that you can do. I mean, there are so many logistical challenges with any kind of production. When you're doing screen, there are so many moving parts. But with adaptation specifically, I think there's also that an extension of that, which is like there are conversations and compromises <laughs> to be made and things will be gained and lost in the, um, in the adaptation process. I'll start with you, Holly. I mean, you know, when you're writing a book, it's such a solo sport and then an adaptation is suddenly massive kind of teamwork. Mm. You know, even if you're writing the scripts solo, mm. eventually it's going to become a huge collaboration. Um, let me... Let me ask you, like, how is the teamwork involved in Adaptation Wonderful and how is it kind of, like, a bit mind-bending, frustrating at worst? Yeah. yeah. So as somebody, Ben, who um, has a story attached, as anybody who is here with us today who knows me will know, I have a story attached to literally everything in my life. If you come to my house for a cup of tea and you ask me which teacup to take, I'll be like, don't take that one, it's too special. We, had, we got it like 60 years ago on Granny's like favourite day under the mango tree. Like my cousin has a joke where she cannot come to my house and have a relaxed cup of tea because she's too scared about what story she's going to well. damage if she breaks the teacup. <laughs> now I say that to preface my attachment to things yeah. and my, uh, the meaning, the attributed meaning and significance that things take on for me. Where, uh, for, uh, speaking of the light bulb moment, mm. when... And like what you were saying, Tom, about being so dazzled and so bewildered that anybody in the film world, which for me being quite very far removed from the film world, that anybody would see that in my work, you do just become the nodding... Well, I did. You become the nodding dash do like yeah. dashboard dog, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, toy. Yeah. And so I made a decision really early on, which was a light bulb moment, where I thought and really had like a reckoning with myself, mm. if you are going to sell the option to people to make an adaptation of this book, you need to hand over the baby. You need to, you need to do that with as much uh, integrity and grace and trust that you have in, in who is gathering around to make it and to hand it over. Well, in that process, mm. did you discover stuff about the story? I mean, they take it off. Mm. They start, you know, um, tearing it apart and remixing it mm -hmm. to find the goodness and joy that it can bring to screen. Yes. Did you find surprising stuff that you didn't expect in the story that they unearthed? Absolutely. Like what? There were moments where I read the earliest drafts of Sarah's script and I said to my partner, Sam, this is better than anything <laughs> that I could have written. <laughs> and, and I would talk to Sarah about it on the phone or on Zoom conversations or something, and she, her copy of Lost Flowers 
is like the greatest thing a novelist could ever hope to see of their book. It is, I don't even know if the front cover exists anymore. It's wrecked. I think it's, it's fallen off. Yeah. And her notes and the thumbing. And when I would talk to her about the early scripts that I read, she would say to me, it, I was just going through a door that you had written onto the page. Mm. And so the things that, like you said, like what, the things that blew me away, for example, is so much of writing Alice Hart was keeping it in the novel to Alice's perspective, particularly when she's a nine-year-old child, because if I tried to show it um, from too many perspectives for too long, we would have had a Russian tome on our hands. Mm -hmm. So I kept it to Alice, and particularly because at nine, you can only understand so much in the world. And then in certain scenes where Alice is perceiving something that she does not have the maturity to understand, in the scripts, in the adaptation, Sarah has gone through that doorway and she has written and shown the power of what's happening that's inferred in the novel but that is not seen. Mm. And that's... I, the first time that I read the scripts, I sent Sarah a photo of me that my partner, Sam, took when I didn't know that he was taking the photo of me reading. And it, it's side profile, <laughs> and it's me with my iPad on my couch reading, and my face... <laughs> <laughs> and I sent that to Sarah, assuming she would know... What that face meant? That that face Right, the face meant, means joy. I am so deeply moved and joyful, Not and, <laughs> and Sarah wrote back, and she was like, oh, my God! <laughs> and so then I was like, no! Years. It's like, is it joy? Yes. Is it anguish? Is it gas? Yes. And you had to clarify yes, it that, it was, that it was joy. It was absolute clarity <laughs> required on my behalf. Um, thank you for sharing. <laughs> I, want to, I wish that photo was just beamed up behind you right now. Um, Tom, I really want to talk about the assassination of Gianni Versace, the American crime story um, installation that you had um, helped adapt, which was the murder of... It was the story of the murder of designer Gianni Versace by um, the serial killer, Andrew Kananen. And that itself was also the story that was in Maureen uh, Orth's book, Vulgar Favours. So you've kind of got the real life story, you've got the book about the story, and now you're adapting it. Um, and it's about real people as well. Mm -hmm. So there's several layers of things that are going on there. Um, just give us the origin story for that. Like what was, how did that project come about and what drew you into that story? Uh, I'd written a TV show called London Spy with Ben Whishaw for the BBC. And um, that is about a, a, a spy who was murdered in London. And uh, there was a mystery about it. Um, his body was found in a bathtub in a bag. And actually, I'm, I'm saying he was murdered. It's still unclear whether he was murdered. But I mean, there were no fingerprints on the bag, etc. So, I mean, it, look, it looks very much like it was a murder. Anyway, so I, I fictionalized that, that, that murder into, a, into this love story. It was made with Ben Wish for the BBC. It did well. And then they had done the OJ series and they wanted, they were going to do uh, Hurricane Katrina next, a season two. And then a distant theoretical possibility of season three was um, the murder of Versace. And they sent me Maureen's book, um, vulgar favors and uh, it was incredible I think she's an amazing journalist she wrote for Vanity Fair she's a wonderful person I didn't know that yet but I mean I read the book 
And um, it was funny, the book came and it was kind of this really ugly paperback and I didn't like it at all, just reading from it. It was like this tiny little, you know, like true crimey, you know, and it was going to fall apart format, straight yeah. away. So I went online and found a first edition hardback and bought it. Uh, and, you know, then it became that treasured kind of, I don't want to offend anyone, kind of Bible on, on my desk. And then again, it got more and more notes. Um, there's actually a funny story about that. Because I bought the first edition, she had to make a revision in the second edition. She mentioned a name and he asked to be removed because he was being out. He was outed. Oh, no. But I was working from her first. She didn't, no one knew that I was working from this first edition. And so I, when I come up with names, sometimes I use like, the names in the book. I'm like, why not? It's in the book. She, no one sued she didn't. She, she she didn't tell us. Was it his whole name? I can't. <laughs> I can't say any more. But any, all I say is the name made it all the way through to the show, and like there was like he was not happy. Yeah, He's, I'm wow. like you're still not out, please. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> I'm like we all know. Oh anyway, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so there's a danger in going to first editions. But it was like so. Um, anyway, so I was working on this first edition. I thought it was a brilliant book. I thought what was really interesting is I knew the Versace case yeah. and the murder. I knew nothing about the murders before. Mm. And then what was interesting, you, I mean, everyone calls him a serial killer, and I can see why, because he murdered several people. But technically, he's a spree killer. So he's someone who snapped and then killed several people. And the difference is serial killers have a kind of pathology that goes back that is really tormented from an early period, whereas Cunanan could have had a trajectory that could have been something interesting. He was really smart. He was full of dreams and it went terribly wrong. And so that made him quite an interesting figure until he starts killing people. And then I switched, that was kind of how I came up with the structure. But that was all in the book. It was kind of this full of anecdotes. But what was interesting is she had one, I didn't meet her and didn't do a phone call with her, although the producers did. And they just passed on one request was that she was really worried that the issue of homophobia, and she had had some criticism on some of the representation because she's a, a straight woman. And actually, I didn't, I, some of the, there were some moments where I was like, she didn't really like Versace's clothes, particularly, that was her preference. But I was like, if you're going to do a show about a genius, let's, let's find out what was the genius, what was the genius. And that's, so the piece is a real celebration of Versace, and mm. I love his work, and I actually mm. kind of fell in love with him as a figure. And I think that kind of changes the balance of it slightly. Um, so there are things like that, but um, it's like, a, I was very lucky, just, and it was, as you say, it was, I found it much easier to just pick up this book and it was full of these wonderful, wonderful kind of stories and insights into people than compared to picking up my own book where you're like just critical of it suddenly in a different way, I think, maybe. Is there, is there any difficulty around adapting a story that's a crime, essentially, and when there's a crime, there are people left behind, there are survivors, there's trauma around that. Like, is that something to be mindful of or is that something that's best blocked out for the creative process no i think it's essential for the creative process really i mean that was at the heart of it i mean one of the one of the victims was really maligned actually and treated terribly by the um the police and to me it was actually this kind of why didn't this person run and trying to explain why this um, why this character didn't run was at the heart of trying to unlock that story and that was the episode that got nominated for the Emmy, but it was brilliantly played by an Australian actor, actually, um, uh, Cody Fern, uh, who won the Heath Ledger Scholarship or uh, mm. Fellowship and then went to the States. And he was unknown. He came in 
and uh, lots of very well-known people were auditioning, and he just gave this sensational performance. It was like mind-blowing in a room, and he got the part, and he's a brilliant actor. And, and so, you know, he felt that as well. He had that connection, and he kind of took this person who was a victim, but it was like what was great about his life and putting that at the center of the, the episode rather than the crime itself. The life was bigger than the crime. Mm. Eleanor, with the luminaries, I think one of the things that um, people who are familiar with both the book and the TV show picked up on is, like, there is a shift in emphasis in terms of how the story is told. Um, Anna, the character, is kind of a, a passive personality in the book, and where she arrives in the book versus the TV show is, is different, and she becomes the central force uh, on screen. How and why did that happen, and when did you make that breakthrough that that was necessary? It was quite early on, I, I, I think. I mean, at the, at the, there were just so many drafts. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite hard to remember when, it, when, it, when that idea kind of came into the mix. Um, I, th I think it was, it was actually a political decision, which is maybe, maybe, maybe not, I don't know, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe not the best of answers that I could give. But this was in the, the time right after Me Too, and, mm. and, and kind of every, everything was in the air. And I think that... Um, for, for for kind of reasons of historical accuracy, the um, the novel was populated far more by men than by women. And I think that it was felt that this this kind of wouldn't fly mm. um, in, in terms of a, a, a TV show. Um, but it's it, it's funny with decisions like that because you know there there's kind of so many other decisions that follow on from these big early decisions that you make, and. I, I, I still kind of wonder whether we whether we made the right mm. choice in that. Um, there, there were so many possible ways in into the into the show, and it just so happened that at the point where um, the funding finally lined up and everything kind of seemed greenlit and on its way to production, that that was the draft that was kind of current at that time. Mm. But there's there's so many kind of more lives not lived in mm. in, a, in a show. I think than, than our. Than, than feel like exist in, a, in writing yeah, a novel. Yeah, all those previous iterations and drafts of, of what it could potentially yeah, be and as well. I, and, and I think like if you've ever had the experience of being in post-production, you see just how, how many possible versions there are of any possible scene. You know, mm. just the, the lengthening the pauses or, 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 or dropping a line that had been scripted can just change everything utterly. Mm. Well, how cool that we get that amazing performance by Eve Hewson as well out of all of that. And I'm wondering, like, I just want to open up with all of you, when you've been adapting other people's work or when you've had your own work adapted or when you've adapted your own, uh, there must be such strange and surreal moments, especially on set. Um, you know, I, I remember when I walked onto the set on the TV show that we were adapting for my memoir, and I'm like, how have you recreated my childhood home like it was it was a shocking kind of experience amazing work from the art director but it felt like a very very strange kind of moment what have those surreal moments been uh for each of you what's it been like on the set of Alice Hart you'll be stunned to know that I do the face again right <laughs> yeah it's that it's that <laughs> that was basically my entire first day oh. on set I physically it, it was the most bizarre cerebral experience in my physical brain that I have ever had and will probably ever have in my whole life because uh, I was really lucky to be on set for 
a number of weeks when production were filming at Thornfield, the flower farm, mm. in Lost Flowers. And the, the centre of the flower farm is the house that all of the women live in under the leadership of June, played by Sigourney Weaver. And I was very deliberate when I wrote the novel about describing how women would create and embody a home that they live in as a sanctuary, a safe place, a place of comfort. It's also their, you know, their workplace where they work with native flowers. And I walked, we arrived where it was being filmed and Sam and I had a rental car and we drove in on the dirt driveway and I had no idea what to expect and all I saw was the trailers and the production um, trucks and the marquees and Sam was driving and I was in the passenger seat and we were just driving and that's all I saw and I was like, oh my God, babe. And he's like, babe, this is not it. This is, that's, he was like, babe, that's literally the food tent where everybody like is eating. Which is an emotional experience. Which is an emotional experience because there's like Alice Hart going to eat lunch with her mum. Like, so that's, I was undone by seeing the, the movie part having anything to do with something that I wrote and what I couldn't be prepared for and I I don't know if I will ever process is then walking from that area up the dirt road that leads up to the house that I made up in my mind. Like you said, how have you recreated my childhood? I walked in there, I mean, I can't say anything because someone will know and I'll get shot or something. (laughs) Um, But it is an actual... Recreate. It is like, yeah. I, I don't get it. Somebody has gone into my brain and made it real. It's witchcraft. It is absolute witchcraft. Yeah. The production design was incredible and down to objects and details. And I just walked around like sounding like Chewbacca the whole time I was there. <laughs> that, was, that was my really intelligent author experience of being on set with everybody. Eleanor, what about you for for the luminaries? I mean, it can go one of either ways, right? Sometimes it's like, wow, that is exactly what it was in my brain. And then other times it's like, wow, that is really the opposite. Um, What book were you reading? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but sometimes that's actually a great thing when it's the opposite and Mm. it's actually a beautiful thing that they've um, created. What what were the most kind of strange and surreal moments for you on the set of The Luminaries? Well, I mean, I I found it just so moving to be on set. And, you know, the the amount of talent in, in so many different departments that is being on that is on show in any frame of any, any TV series. It's just, it's so humbling. Um, we, we figured out on the set of The Luminaries that if you added up um, uh, all of the hours that everybody had spent on it and pretended it was just one person working a nine-to-five job, that person would have started work in the, in the time of King Henry VIII. And if they oh had God. worked continuously to the present, you would end oh up with the luminaries at the end of it. Um, so, you, you know, it's just, it's just so many hours and just so much industry. And um, w- walking down, d- down the little um, uh, street that they made of the uh, kind of Dunedin um, and then later of the Hokitika, uh kind of gold rush town, you walk through these doors and the set design and the production mm. design, it's like you open drawers and there's, there are things in the drawers. And they never you know, film the, inside the drawers. No, it's it's no. extraordinary. It's, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's this, the, the, the level of reality is, it, it can be kind of 
I don't know. It, it, I, I just found it very moving. I found it very kind of humbling. That, that See, Eleanor says yeah. it beautifully, and I'm like, I was Chewbacca. <laughs> you know, both like, things can be Chewbacca. true. We were, both, we were moved and humbled Chewbacca's. That was the, the, the visceral manifestation that, of We're, we're of saying the same thing. Eleanor was yeah. saying... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the Sydney Writers Festival Instagram account has, like, the best quotes of the festival. It's just going to be Eleanor Catton. I would be proud I am proud, Eleanor, to be too bad beside you. Uh, Tom, what about you? What have been the most um, indelible, kind of strange, interesting, happy um, memories on set, whether it's you adapting someone else's work? Like, did, did Maureen come to set, for instance? Or what was it like um, for you? Did you go on set around Tom Hardy and Gary Oldman and Numi Rapace? <laughs> uh, yeah, and Maureen wasn't on set, actually. I got to meet her afterwards at the when it was released. Um, we became quite close, but I suppose the first time is the most magical. And it was Child 44 when I was in Prague. They were filming in Prague and it was weird because it was a night shoot and I was staying at a converted monastery, which is not appropriate at all. And there, but it was very beautiful. And then I sort of turn up and you, I don't know what you expect, but like you turn up and everyone's there working. So you're on your own. So you potter around, the car comes quite late. It was like 10 o'clock and it's a night shoot. And I remember driving, it was a forest scene and we're driving to this forest. And the first thing I saw was this giant mattress in the air that's full of light. And because obviously shooting at night, you can't, they have to fake moonlight sometime, which they fake with this mattress, floating mattress of helium. <laughs> full. And it's like, that's the first thing I really remember seeing, thinking, wow, this is kind of special. And then getting to the forest scene. And I was like, they're filming the scene where these, these guys are cruising in the forest. And the director comes out and he's like, really nice guy, Daniel Espinosa, Swedish. And I'm half Swedish. And he's like, what do you think of this setup? And I was like, this is what you're asking me? The cruising scene? I was like, I don't know. Like, I wasn't in the Soviet Union. I didn't. Anyway, I was like, it looks good. And then Tom Hardy came out and everyone, it was at the beginning of the shoot, so everyone is in a really good mood at the beginning. And so they give you a hug. At the end of the shoot, when I visited again, there were no hugs. But at the beginning, <laughs> there was a hug and it was like really a beautiful, it was like the mattress, the hug. And then I got the, I got the headphones, I listened to the scene, I, I heard, and this is me being a little gossipy, but I heard these, cra they were doing these crazy Russian accents. Wow. And I was like, I, just, I took the headphones off and I said, are you going to stick with these crazy Russian accents? And they were like, yeah, what are you don't like them? Because they've been listening to them for two months or whatever, so they were all used to them. But I just turned up and I was like, they're really like, they're speaking English. Why are they speaking English in fake <laughs> Russian accents? Like, and then that, and I, you know, that became all the reviews mentioned the accents. <laughs> and I was like, that thing that it's in a way, it's a silly thing because it's mm. not really important. The performances are great. The show I and mean, the movie looks wonderful. All the reviews mentioned the accents. That thing where you turn up on set and you haven't seen any of the conversations, you haven't been involved in anything. So you're coming in like a reviewer almost, or like a cold view. And I was like, oh, I don't know whether this is, I think people are gonna get distracted by it. I don't yeah. know whether it makes sense. Well, I guess the other option is what they did in Chernobyl, which you do get over quite quickly, which is like set in Russia, but they're all kind of speaking in Cockney for. But that was a brilliant decision yeah. because, you know, they're not speaking Russian. So why put on a fake Russian accent? Mm. It was a really smart decision in Chernobyl. And that, and we, I think that show made the, our Child 44 made the wrong decision. But, you know, there's that sense of just, you know, being the one saying, are you sure about this? And everyone's like, oh, he's the difficult, you know. Yeah. yeah. Lee, Chris yeah. And Forest, and they had, they had like a, a linguist, like a, prof I don't know, a super smart, like, accent checker. And I was looking and thinking, 
what are you doing? Like, yeah. and he was like, I, I know, like, looking back now, I know I'm like, he's like, learn not to rock the boat. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to give the audience way more time to ask questions, but I've just really enjoyed these people too much. So sorry. Um, but we do have about 12 minutes for audience questions. And there are mics uh, coming through. They're being set up at the bottom of the aisles. Um, and people who are watching the live stream are able to submit questions there. If you do have um, mobility issues or you can't get to the mics easily, just wave your hand uh, wildly and the volunteers will be able to bring a wireless mic up to you as well. But we really invite people to come down to the mics. We'll start with you. Um, what's your name and what's your question? And there have been so many adaptations. So when you are making your adaptation, how do you not just plagiarise the Romola Garay in the Gwyneth Paltrow films? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a great question. I, I did watch both of those um, films. And I watched Clueless, uh, which to me is the, it's kind of the paragon. That it's kind of the untouchable um, in Emma adaptation. Um, but I think I, I, I watched them in order to not... to. To, to figure out what I didn't want to copy, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's such a... The, the, there's, there's so much room in any, in any work for so many different adaptations of, of that work. And it's about picking what, what you think your, your, your film wants to say, I suppose. Um, I, I was really taken with the idea of bringing out the servants in, in, in Emma um, that, that, that are present in the novel but not really talked about because they're, they're so obvious to Emma's existence that she, she wouldn't notice them. But I, I suddenly had the idea that if she was behaving in these monstrous ways and, and her monstrosity was being facilitated by, the, by these people around her, then the, then the satire would kind of come to the surface in, in, in a much more interesting way. Um, and, and because I took that approach, there are certain things about the earlier adaptations that, that, that I knew I, kind of, I didn't want to copy, I suppose. So I think, I think for me it's about having a very strong sense of, of, of what you want to do with the material um, that, that hopefully honours what is there already. You know, it's, it's not about bringing something that isn't there already. It's about kind of what, what you want your adaptation to foreground. Mm. Thank you so much for your question. You. That was great. I've got a question here uh, from the live stream, stream from Lisa, all the way from Launceston. This is what, one for Tom. Uh, Tom, which do you prefer, Adaptor or Adaptee? It's a personal question. Um, <laughs> which task... <laughs> uh, it's not even night time yet. Um, which <laughs> task is the more challenging? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, Lisa. Are you, is this really Lisa? Is this <laughs> one of my friends? It's, um, it's come from a personal app. That's really, I remember, I don't know why this came into my head when you were answering that question, but Hugh Grant, one of his friends, I think, was nominated for uh, Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, and someone asked him, oh, what, do you, what do you think about your friend getting... I think it was Emma Thompson, actually, getting nominated. And he was just like, well, she just copied out all the best bits. <laughs> but in a way, there's a truth to that, because with Maureen's book, I just, you know, found the great, the, the stories, you know, she had a really brilliant eye for finding the moments that capture something about character, and it was like going into it, and whenever there was a moment um, where I was unsure or struggling, I would just reread the book, 
Because you've done original screenplays, right? And what, like, that's creating a universe from scratch. So more time-consuming, would you say? Yeah, and there's not that much. You don't have the, the resource to fall back on because it's your own brain, and that's the thing that's panicking. So you're, like, falling back on your own brain when you're panicking or mm. struggling is not, a, is not the resource. Whereas the book is there, and it's, like, impressive. And, you know, and as you said, it's other. So it doesn't, you have a different relationship to it. And um, so I would say that there's a real joy to adapting someone's work. Mm. Yeah, I would say, I'd definitely say that. Great. Thank you, Tom. Um, we have a question on this mic. Hi, my name's Nadine. I'm just wondering, um, as writers, having had your writing adapted to film, how much does that then play into the next novel that you write? How conscious or maybe even subconsciously are you that there's the potential that this will be picked up as well? That's a great question. Can I start with you, Holly? Like, has, has the possibility of adaptation into screen affected or influenced how you've written uh, The Seven Skins of Esther Wilding? It, it kind of went into the, that, that uh, pressure or awareness went into the same pot as the pressure and awareness of being read for a second time. Like after, I, I never thought that I would be here. I never thought I would be sitting on a stage at Sydney Writers' Festival with a room full of people that have come to see Eleanor and Tom. And I, and I am part of the show. And I say that because uh, what has happened to Lost Flowers mm. is the very last thing that I can still fathom. So it felt, after Lost Flowers, like uh, writing my second novel, which I really wanted to do, it felt like it would be too easy to uh, be toppled by the overwhelm. And I made a decision really early uh, I made a really convicted promise to myself in 2018 after I finished, finished touring Lost Flowers in Australia and I started to think about my second novel and I promised myself that I would not write from any place inside of myself that was not the place that has been in me since I was a kid that desperately loves being in my imagination and stories. Mm. And if I was at my desk writing Esther Wilding and I was asking myself, the one thing I asked myself the whole way through that book was, do I love it? Do I love it? And if I didn't love it, I wasn't writing from the right place in my heart. So I'd have to go away and take a break from the desk until I could come back and be in that place of imagination and heart and write from there. Because if I tried to write for anything else, mm. I would be a far diluted version of myself. Mm. What about you, Eleanor? Um, after the Lumeries, you've done quite a bit of screenwriting and um, now you've got Burnham Wood out. And I'm just wondering, has screenwriting change the way that you approach prose or do you write with a cinematic mind or do you even as a question asked do you write with the possibility of adaptation in mind uh, definitely not that but it has um it has really changed the way that i i think about prose actually it, it it's meant that i luxuriate in all the things that that only prose can do or only of, of you know things like um using movement through a paragraph to move you through space and time you know you can dip into somebody's memories you can you can move across great distances you can kind of characterize somebody 
um, almost in the manner of putting together an argument where it's not it, it, it's entirely psychological, but it's not necessarily in either time or space. Mm. Or, or if it is in time and space, it's kind of being quite free with both kind of dimensions, I guess. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that on screen there are great advantages that, that fiction can't do. You know, that, to have a soundtrack is unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> the, the, the day that they, that they make soundtracks that can play along, you yeah. know, alongside reading a novel, that's, that's going to be a very exciting day. And, and, and also just the, the idea of having a cast, you know, this phenomenally talented and extremely good-looking bunch of people <laughs> who are, like, just really fun to look at. Um, you know, uh, that, that, that's something that a novel, a novel doesn't really have, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely things that each form can do really well and, 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 and can do uniquely. But um, I, I think that having the experience in working in both mediums has made me just feel more excited about each one of them separately. That's cool. Hey, Tom, you've also been adapting your own work, um, uh, your novel The Farm, actually, uh, which is a psychological thriller about um, a man who believes his parents are one thing until he gets contradicting kind of accounts from each of them. Um, did you know writing the novel that maybe this is destined for screen, or did you want to write it as the novel and then the possibility came up later? You know what the... I mean... Having done both, there's such a beauty to writing a novel, which is you don't have to think about logistics, you don't have to think about budget, yeah. you don't have to think <laughs> about like what the weather's going to be like, you know, whether you can have four people on a boat or twelve people on a boat, <laughs> you know. Like I, the, the new book, Cold People, is set in Antarctica, and for the TV show that I've just done, Class of '09, we had to do digital snow. So I know how much snow costs, <laughs> and it's really expensive. So I'm like, you don't have to worry about that. You can just literally create this world and really love it. And then if someone else wants to do something with it in that sense, that's great. But it has to exist in its own right, in its own form. It can't be searching for anything else. And I think there's a, no, I think there's a real wonder to novel writing that in some ways I feel even more intensely having, as you say, having done the other side. Mm. Thank you so much. I think we've got several questions here. So I'm going to do something unorthodox. I'm going to get you to ask all your questions, because we're almost out of time, and you answer them how you see fit. Why don't okay. we just yeah. have questions yeah, and no answers. question round. <laughs> I'll be very quick. My name's Sky. Hi. Um, Hi. Thank you for your work and bringing such joy, to me at least. Um, I'm curious about... Um, we all like to play this sport about what's better, the film or the book, and or the TV series or the book, and don't see, don't see, watch that yet, read the book first, and blah, blah, blah. How do you feel about... Um, do you, would you want to preserve what you've written and say if someone comes to option it, actually, no, I want to keep this for how it lives in the minds of my audience? Um, or are you just so grateful that someone wants to turn it into to something else that you don't really have a choice? It's like, okay, well, yes, let's get this to a bigger audience. Um, Great. Yeah, the, 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 your, the relationship that you have with your audience, I guess I'm interested in. Great Thank you. Sky. Let's park that. Thank you so much. What's your name? Hi, I'm Valerie. Valerie. Um, with the Writers Guild striking currently in America um, and your experiences on set and writing, um, do you see any effective solution in sight and what do you think of what's unfolding currently? Thank you so much, Valerie. Hey, I'm Tash. Um, you hear a lot of like the leaders of different streaming services in the US talk about this like need for content and this kind of machine for content to fill screens. What do you think is the difference between like art and content and what's like the legitimate pull for human storyteller and like 
human storytelling and the pull to like feed this content machine that's like filtering into different aspects of life. Really curious what you guys think. Great. Thank you so much for that question. Wow, that's so, they're such tricky questions. I'm so I'm glad not. we're out of time. Oh, yeah. I'm like, wow. 20 seconds. Go. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let, I mean, does anyone want to take on any of those questions? One, um, do you ever just write a book thinking, actually, it'll be fine if it's just a book? Um, and does that, yeah. That's how I write every book. That's how you that's write. How, yeah. how I write. I think if somebody... Um, wanted to option my book and uh, they felt like an amazing fit. Curiosity and uh, the desire to connect through story would make me say yes. Okay. And it ask. does change, you know, a, 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 an unsuccessful adaptation does also change people's relationship to the book. Mm. Mm. I can give an example. I won't give an examples, but there are some yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, look, I'll allocate a question to each of you. Okay, I'll allocate you the, the strike question. That's oh. a really tricky that, that, one. That needs to be the hardest one. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one is hard. You've won a booker. Uh, you can take it on. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you work in the Hollywood system as well, and I guess... Anyone who's a writer anywhere can work in the Hollywood system. It's affecting how everything's going at the moment. How do you reflect on the strike and how's it affecting you? Well, um, I am on strike. It doesn't, this is what being on strike looks like as a writer. Mm. But like, um, no, they have, a, they have a really strong case that it's become much, much harder to earn a living in, in TV. Well, particularly for up and coming writers, it's a real problem with streaming. And so, but they bundled a lot of issues to get super complicated in the, the scale of it. And, it's hard to unpick really quickly, but the fundamental the fundamental point is it's become really hard to earn a, a, a good life in the states, like a healthcare everything yeah. on the on the current system. And yeah, you know. And Eleanor, just the very easy question to wrap <laughs> up with. It's, it's a really good question. I mean, this uh, this this kind of constant dance between art versus the content machine, or I guess art versus commerce, generally. Um, yeah, I mean. Is it always the case that if a job comes up, you'll do it because there's the demand for it, or, or do you get to afford to be a bit picky about that? Oh yeah, I mean, I, 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 hopefully, yeah. I mean, I think that that we talk about content because art exists, and if art stopped existing, we we would not be able to talk about content. You know, mm. <laughs> she, um, did um, <laughs> 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 she did yeah, it. Yeah. I kind of, it was such a good question about the kind of what, what, what's the hunger for meaning? Yes. Like why, why do we keep coming back to it? And I, I feel like in my adult life, there are two kind of truths that I feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to understand, which is that everybody's the same and that everybody's different. Mm. And that, that those two things, I think, is at, are at the heart of all storytelling. And a, and a really wonderful story will teach you both things at once. That is a beautiful answer to land on. It's... She won the book of people. Uh, <laughs> could you please join me in thanking our wonderful guests today, Tom Rob Smith, Eleanor Catton and Holly Ringland. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.